from the number one best-selling author of Life Rescripted. You're now tuning in to the Year of Purpose podcast. I'm Zephan Moses Blacksburg. So I've got Gary Mancuso with me, and Gary's awesome because he was introduced to me by someone else who had been on our show, and that was Sean Dasani, episode YOP026. It's called Born to Transform, a great episode. And so Gary uh, was introduced to me by Sean, and he was looking to uh, basically take his book to the next level. He's got an awesome story. It's exactly why we wanted to bring him on the show and share his story with everybody. So Gary, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Zephan. Yeah, so you know, the first thing I want to really dive into is just a little bit of your backstory because I know that your book came out of a relatively large trip and retreat from uh, the common lifestyle that everyone's used to. So maybe if you could, Gary, just tell us leading up to uh, your decision and your journey. You know, where were you in life? What was going on? Where were you working? And things like that. Well, before I left, uh, I was working as head of business development at a foreign exchange trading room at a, a large uh, regional bank here in Los Angeles. And um, there I developed an automated uh, payment service that outsourced the processing of certain types of payments for um, a particular company niche. And it did really well. Nobody else was doing it. And so that was kind of a fun ride and a journey in and of itself. And it gave me a lot of freedom uh, to travel while I was working. And um, so I uh, uh, started noticing as I was traveling that there was a lot of really uh, kind of sad things taking place in, in many of the places I was visiting that you know, I'd go to these supposedly pristine paradises like out in the South Pacific, what have you, and I would see that the islands, the the island cultures, and the environments were being just degraded far more, I think, than most people even imagined. And uh, so, even though I would come back to work and I really enjoyed what I was doing, I was I was living here in L.A. I had a nice home right on the coast. I was happily married. Uh, you know, had lots of friends. Used to have dinner parties a lot at my home here. You know, I certainly was enjoying myself. But I thought, you know, I need to get out there and really experience the sort of the beauty and the awesomeness of, of the world while it's still there to be able to see uh, because it's just changing so fast and a lot of it's being degraded so, so fast and so badly. Uh, there's a lot of good things, too, going on with the modernization that's, that's spreading, but a lot of it uh, is not so good. So, um, so I just dropped everything. You know, so I, I quit my career, sold my home. Uh, my ex and I, uh, it's not my ex, uh, we, we sold our cars, put everything else in storage, and we set out on a, on a long journey. Well, that's quite a decision to make. I mean, I feel like not many people are fortunate enough to be in a, a circumstance where they can, you know, put things on hold, especially financially. I know that that's one of the big things that scares so many people. Uh, but at the same time, I think you, you've got a great point there with, you know, there are many cultures and places and civilizations in the world that are slowly starting to disappear. You know, we see it. There's actually a show, I believe, on CNN with uh, featuring Bill Weir called uh, The Wonderlist. And, you know, they're exploring places that are kind of like these, uh, I wouldn't call them lost cities, but they'll certainly be lost cities in the near future. And uh, so people really are missing out on this adventure and just seeing everything that life has to offer. What were some of the 
fears or things going into that decision process of, you know, we're going to get ready to, to travel the world? Like, I mean, did you have concern with coming back and not being able to find a job? Was there concern with, you know, is the money going to run out? You know, what, what happened there? Well, of course, you, you have, you know, I had all these, you know, these are all natural concerns. I certainly wasn't uh, uh, well off enough to think of, of early retirements or anything even close to that. So it wasn't that kind of a situation. So I was definitely taking a, uh, a big risk, you know, so to speak, by short-circuiting my career, which is kind of on the fast track, right in the middle of it, to completely uproot and disconnect from what I was doing. But I've always been pretty resourceful, and I have had several periods of my life where I have taken off uh, in the uh, and done long journeys, but typically they would be you know for months, not for years. Right. <laughs> so this is a little different magnitude, and I just felt that uh, first off, I just had to do it. It was a dream of mine. Well, number one, I've always wanted to know the world and experience it, and have the freedom and time to do it. And then secondly, you know, I just felt like if you don't, if I didn't do it now, whatever the cost, it would just be too late. Because someday, let's say I waited until the, the time was right when I was set up for life or ready to retire someday or something like that, it'd be too late. You know, the, a lot of the color and the, and the awesomeness that's left in the world and a lot of the vestiges of the past, you know, we could still see past humanity the way we were 15,000 years ago or the way we were back in the biblical times or the way we were back in the uh, what we call the dark ages or the middle ages we can still see all of that right time time travel is still available to us so to speak but that's all going to disappear and i felt that even though i was taking a, a big financial risk in 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 many ways uh, that it was worth it and i just figured out when i got back how to what how to get back uh, get back going again I think you said a really cool thing there. You said time travel is still available to us. And I think that that's one of the biggest reasons why people really should take this risk is that um, if you're, you know, whether this means leaving a job, whether this means taking a leap and trying a new job, uh, whether this means, in your case, traveling the world, I think that uh, knowing that time travel is still available to us, that we still have time left to go back and recover from any uh, risk that we might take and fail at this point, I think that should be a huge motivator for anybody out there who's trying to take the leap. Uh, wouldn't you agree? Yes, yes, I, I, I agree. Um, I, I agree. Cool. The, the... <laughs> <laughs> that was a real good answer for you, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, you, you're using the, you're taking the the term time travel and using it in a slightly different way, and it, it makes sense, of course. Uh, you know, to, to as a as a motivation for people to do what they want to do and and live their dream and and just and go for it, whatever that happens to be. Um, I, that's one way. I was using it in, in, a, in a way also, though, to refer to the ability for us to actually go back and see different eras uh, and epochs of humanity mm -hmm. and the world itself. You know, whether it's, you know, I went to spend a lot of my time in the great wildernesses of the world, you know, whether it was in the Congo or Papua New Guinea or Borneo or in, uh, in the Amazon, you know, the, or the pole, you know, down by the Arctic or the Antarctic. Um, so, that's why I meant by time travel in the sense that you can see the past 
still. And you don't need some kind of uh, futuristic time machine to do it. You could just, you know, you, you get on an airplane or a boat or a train or, you know, however you want to do it. And you just got to kind of get out there to places that a little bit off piste. Right, um, right. But let me ask this real quick. Why, sure. why is it so important or what do we have to gain from experiencing uh, these other time periods and, and people who have, you know, walked the earth before us? You know, what, uh, and this is... This is not me uh, trying to imply that there is nothing. I'm implying that there's plenty of things. But just to ask you, you know, what is there for us to gain by learning from these other cultures and people who walked before us? Well, as part of that would be personal interest. You know, for me, it was just a fascination I've had since I was a kid. Uh, so that's just curiosity sense of adventure to want to know other things that are outside of my daily realm but for from a more practical i guess universal applicable uh standpoint when you when you look at somebody the way they lived let's say f you know back in the neolithic ages or as close as approximation as we could get to that today because there's nowhere except for a very few remote places that are that are really untouched, so to speak, or uncontacted by the modern world. But we still have vestiges of what humanity was a long time ago. We see ourselves, mm -hmm. and we see who we were at one time, and how we thought, and the myths that we develop in our minds, and the, the, the ways that we structure our lives, and our, our, you know, our religions, and our, our societies. What we do now is, is still very similar to what people did a long time ago. You know, we build mythologies, then we build religions around that, then we structure our societies around that. And obviously it's developed, uh, you know, it's, it's developed, of course, uh, in ways that might look unimaginable to people from those days. Uh, and yet a lot of it is actually very similar. Right. So we, so we can know ourselves better today by understanding our primal who we were as primal people. So for me on a personal level, that was something I always wanted to do was yeah. just understand, understand people when I'm talking to them, where are you coming from? Who are you? And if I see who you were 15,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, again, just as best as I can, you know, uh, from what's available today by going out to very, let's say remote traditional people, I can understand you better than I could otherwise. Um, we can also learn a lot about philosophies and how people live and what are important and what are what kind of value systems are really important. And sometimes a lot of that, you know, you hear so much about this already, so I don't want to sound cliche, but so much of that gets lost today in the uh, in the race for whatever, you know, the things that people think of are as important today, you know, making sure they're on the career fast track, you know, getting that promotion by a certain age, having a certain size house or a certain amount of net worth or, you know, little things that people strive for that may, you know, that are that kind of are way far away from what we really need to be worrying about. Although they may be important, they're not necessarily the, of fundamental importance. Yeah, well, I think that that's a really unique perspective there and a great way to look at it. Um, I want to dive a little bit into kind of your adventure more. And, you know, we learned a little bit about what you can gain out of going into a journey like this. Um, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about what you pulled out of it later on as well. Uh, but kind of walk me through, you know, where's 
the first place that you went. You know, you've packed everything up, you've put some things into storage, you've sold a bunch of stuff. Where did you start? The first really big trip that I made in this uh, long, long deal was um, to Papua New Guinea, the island of New Guinea, which is, if you're not familiar, well, I know you are, but sometimes some, some of the people there may not be familiar with that's where that's at. That's off the uh, northern, little ways off the northern coast, uh, I guess be the northeast coast of Australia. And I made, I had been there before, uh, once before, uh, but that was on a diving trip. And so I, I made a few uh, uh, sh- uh, short land excursions while I was on that diving trip. And I had to go back. I mean, I had a really, really unusual experience, with I, which I'm happy to share with you if you like now. Or, or yeah, I totally. Want to track. Well, the first time I went to the island of, uh, of to Papua New Guinea, uh, which is actually a split island. You have the Papua New Guinea on one island, part of the island on one side, and you have West Papua on the other side, which is owned by Indonesia. But anyhow, um, I was on this boat. We went off, went to shore. We had a few hours. Uh, there was like uh, most of the, of the divers, they went on this uh, sort of tour with uh, some, local, uh, some local indigenous people or natives that were living there. And um, I didn't want to do the, you know, the, the, the guided tourist thing. So, and it wasn't really much of a tourist thing because it's a pretty remote place. But you know, I, just, I just wanted to do something on my own. So I hiked up, uh, uh, up a little hill. And I found this little cave that was overlooking the water, uh, maybe, you know, 800 feet high or something. You know, this wasn't that high of, a, of an elevation, but it was a nice little walk. And so I peeked into the cave. It was kind of a small, dark room. And it took me a while for my eyes to adjust to the darkness. But after a while, I, I kind of saw these shapes. And, I, and finally, it just got clear what I was looking at. I was looking at a room full of skulls. That were stacked up, just all you know, just stacked up in rows. Wow! And it was. It, and then I kind of walked in a little bit, and you know, it was a, it was a small place, but uh, maybe about eight feet high, and you know, I don't know, four feet, five feet uh, in depth, and maybe six feet wide. But eventually, I started really studying the skulls, and I thought, wow, this is really strange, because they were all neatly stacked, and I noticed that every one of them had a hole. It was maybe about uh, perhaps an inch in diameter in a similar spot. And I thought that was really odd. So I kept that in my mind. And then later on that evening, I asked the uh, skipper of the boat, uh, you know, of our dive boat, as we were uh, cruising along to our next dive destination. I said, well, ask him about that. And he explained to me that that was uh, the hole in the skulls was from the uh, ritualistic cannibalism that took place to still in the, some parts of, uh, of Papua New Guinea. He said essentially what people would do is they would take the, when, a, when a, uh, an ancestor, an, old, an older person would die, they would take the skull and they would puncture a hole in it uh, and they would pass it around at a, uh, at a, at a gathering and they would all consume a small piece of the brains of the ancestor and the idea was is to imbibe the wisdom of those ancestors wow and you know i that was pretty interesting to me and i said i have to come back <laughs> to this place because <laughs> he really told me some interesting stories i mean he'd been there for over the year you know for many years he'd been running dive expeditions in and out of that of the waters around papua new guinea which is an amazing place to dive uh in and of itself because it's so remote 
So uh, anyhow, uh, that was my first trip when I started this long journey as I went to the island of New Guinea. I was there with my my ex-wife and uh, and she was a real trooper because it was some you know a little bit of a of a tougher place to travel but uh, pretty amazing experience. Yeah, absolutely. So, was there ever a point where, for example, just did your travel go? You went out there and then you would come back to the United States, or did you find another place to go to after that? Uh, I typically what I did is I would go usually for three to six month journeys. Okay. And then I would use Thailand as a home base for a good deal of my, of my long period that I was gone. I was gone for almost six years. So what I would do is I, I used Thailand cause it was, it was a good hub, uh, as far as, you know, to flight connections or what have you to the different parts of that hemis that part of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, even even in Africa, it was much easier to deal for getting from Thailand to, to, to my entry point in Africa for the various trips I made in the African continent. It was obviously very easy to go from there to almost anywhere into Asia uh, and, of course, anywhere over the South Pacific. So typically I would make uh, three to six-month journeys, and then I would come back and I would stay in this little island called Samui, Koh Samui down in uh, southern Thailand, and uh, spend a week or two weeks reading, exercising, trying to you know eating good food, and periodically, if they had, if it was available, grabbing a good glass of wine, which I kind of missed. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I'd be planning and uh, you know getting ready for my next set of journeys. You know, doing the research, just you know all the things you need to do to prepare if you're going to take off again for three to six months. Um, and generally, that was a pattern. You know, I. Once in a while, I'd come back to America for about a week, uh, see you know see my family or friends, or just take care of personal business. And uh, but generally, my journeys would last three to six months. Uh, one period was uh, over, I think it was about eleven months or twelve months straight before I in between breaks, and probably a couple times, and maybe it was just a couple months I was gone, and then I'd come back for a week or two to regroup and then go back out again. <laughs> Awesome. And so while you're on these trips, one of the questions that's popping up for me is, you know, you're away from family, friends, all sorts of people for such a long time. And I'm guessing you're a little more disconnected from, you know, having a phone at the hip or having your email going off every 18 seconds like we have now. Um, You know, what was it like for you to be, uh, I wouldn't say disconnected, but maybe separated or distanced from a lot of the things that you are used to, like friends and family. Uh, But also while you're on these trips, you know, what about things like healthcare? You know, how do you find a doctor or if you have to go to the dentist, you know, what happens in those cases? (laughs) You know, it's funny you bring up dentistry. You know, all, all my life I've had like I've been lucky. I've had like perfect teeth. <laughs> and the minute I, the minute I'm in a remote place, I you know I have a I have this uh, small crack in a in a back bowler. It was like this huge pain. It was actually out in the, in Peru, and uh, the hills of Peru. Uh, uh, I'd done a trip to or done the the Inca Trail up to Machu Picchu, which you know is is a sort of a popular thing to do, but it's still amazing. And uh, then I was in some other areas that are a little bit more remote. And all of a sudden, I was in a situation of having to find a dentist. <laughs> so you just you, know, you just figure it out. I mean, I've I've found uh, I've I've didn't get I, I'm I'm lucky. I'm pretty healthy, pretty strong. So from a health uh, health standpoint, mostly I, I got through most of the years with only you know usually minor stuff. 
Uh, I did one time need surgery, uh, actually pretty, you know, surgery for a serious knee injury, which I had, which I had done in uh, Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, a few times I, I got hurt, but I would just have to do get treated by somebody that was on a, you know, somewhere that was local. Uh, so, so in that standpoint, you just you just make do. Yeah. Uh, I, I I did carry around my own medical kit, which for for all intents and purposes was fairly useless, other than the. Uh, <laughs> The, the, you know, I, I had I had like spare needles, for instance. If I ever needed a blood transfusion, I could hand you know I, I could hand somebody a clean needles, so I know I wouldn't get a, a disease. Right, but no um, dentistry tools. Yeah, no dentistry tools. And to be honest with you, I, I started thinking, well, if I actually was hurt so badly or I needed a blood transfusion, how am I going to communicate to somebody? Well, hey, go back to my, you know, go back to my tent or my hut or or the guest house I'm staying at, and go find these needles, and then come back here and give me the emergency transfusion. It's and like, then we'll talk. Yeah, then we'll talk. Yeah, it's like it's it was just completely useless. But what came in handy was carrying around antibiotics. Ah, uh, okay. Um, because you get sick, you know, when you get sick, right. a Cipro, Cipro was my best friend for the first couple of years. You know, I, I took it, you know, I, I'm not recommending that people go self-medicate, uh, but periodically, you know, at the, uh, you know, around a Cipro did wonders to recover from some major, well, very, very bad bout of stomach illness, yeah. which every traveler kind of knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> So, um, and that's on the medical side. Tell me a little bit about, you know, the personal side. I mean, is it a lonely thing to be traveling and experiencing the world? I feel like you're so busy and experiencing things that you probably don't think about it nearly as much. But I mean, you're away from fen- friends, family, connections, uh, and I'm sure certain conveniences that uh, back home you might have had that you might not have when you're out uh, around the world. I mean, I know for me, like, I can walk to a Walgreens down the street, you know, and if I need cough medicine, if I need a snack, if I need a birthday card, like it's all right there and I can walk there in five minutes, but I wouldn't expect that to be the same in some of the countries you might've gone to, especially if you're in Koh Samui on an Island off of Thailand, I don't think that they have uh, the same sort of conveniences. So how about like just, you know, being away from people that you knew and being distanced from a lot of those same conveniences, what was that like? Well, partly I, I was accustomed to it in some ways because I had done a lot of travel into more remote places or places that were just very different from what I was accustomed to. I'd done that on and off all my life. So I was a little bit accustomed to it. Um, but I had done it for so long and constantly alone. Uh, the, the, the first six months of my journey, I start out, uh, my ex-wife traveled with me. And she was a great traveler. She was a real trooper. She was strong, and she, you know, she she went for it. But for various reasons, uh, she took a different path. You know, we, we end up taking different paths. And after about the first six months, uh, she uh, went on, you know, did something else. So uh, then I became on my own. And you know, you learn how to be. First off, from a social standpoint, you learn how to become very social which for me was pretty natural anyhow, so that wasn't a big transition, but you just start meeting people, you know, you meet people everywhere you go. And generally, when you're in a place where it's very different from you, you know, you're very different from them. And anybody you run, you know, lots of people you run into are, are going to be curious about you. You know, the more traditional, the more remote, the more tribal your areas you get into, you know, you can't go in there anonymous. You know, people are going to meet you or they're going to introduce you. You're going to have to meet somebody 
uh, quite often because you can't even get around with because you can't speak the language. You, you know, you just can't go stumbling into places that aren't necessarily, you know, there's somebody else's territory, uh, for, you know, so, so to speak. So even though I was alone, I wasn't never really alone. You right. Know, always local people. And and quite often you're actually entrusting your life to those people, too, you know, especially if you're going in the conflict zones or failed states or post-conflict zones or, you know, pre-conflict zones, all of which I've uh, spent time in. Um, and then as far as uh, you know, as far as keeping up, let's say, with the modern world, uh, you know, I was you know, I was pretty plugged into the modern world before I left. I, I developed a, a tech based, you know, software based service. So I was, you know, so I'm somewhat of a, into the technology, um, although I'm a salesman, not necessarily a technologist. Or I'm a, you know, I've had a banking and finance background. Right. But, you know, I was still plugged in. And so what I would do is I would download uh, magazines like The Economist magazine. I would every week, uh, well, whatever I had access to. Uh, to modern communications, I would get the latest issue of the Economist magazine and read it cover to cover, so I could kind of keep up what was going on in the world. Uh, I was always, of course, reading the news on the internet whenever I was at a place where you had internet access. I I became an early subscriber to Skype, a paid subscriber actually to their service, and uh, would would call people from the most strangest remote places. <laughs> And, and people would ask, you know, where are you? And they really didn't know when I'd call them because I'd say, oh, well, I'm, I'm here or such and such, you know. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and the other interesting thing that you find when you're traveling, even now, well, even then, and now it's even more so, but even then, you could be surprised how much modern communications had already gone into some of the most remote places. Hmm. Uh, even in tribal areas, let's say in the highlands of Papua New Guinea, you know, there might be a missionary uh, 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 place, uh, and they would have an internet connection via satellite. Wow. And you could go in there and use it for a few minutes or pay them a little bit or you know, make a donation or pay them a little bit or what have you. There's always somewhere, it seemed like, not always, but quite often there would be things that you would just not expect that you could actually communicate. It might be slow, it might be tedious, it certainly wasn't convenient, but if you wanted to keep in touch, you could, at, at least at times. And, um, and that's what I did. You know? So I kind of made it a point to make sure I kept in touch with my friends at least you know, every few months I'd try to make calls to people. Uh, obviously, as I said, I was keeping up with the local, you know, with the, with the Nash, international news. Um, I had to take care of my own financial affairs and investments, uh, which sometimes is a little rough to do because I would be out of touch for so long periods of time. But right, like, how do you pay taxes from the middle of you know an island in Thailand? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Thailand is is uh, I don't want, I don't want to take the exotic you know exoticness out of it, but uh, Thailand's pretty modern in, in many ways. Yeah, um, pretty well connected, I hear. Yeah, yeah. So in in Koh Samui, actually, I you know I had complete access to full modern communications. You know, they had good internet. I had my PC there. You know, or you know, and uh, so it was easy to communicate from there and do things. Um, and that's actually why I would you know that's what I would do. And when I was in between long journeys, is I would kind of catch up on everything. Yeah. So paying taxes. Yeah, I, my accountant, uh, uh, he's still my accountant now. He's been my accountant for years and years. He was so helpful to me. He would just take care of stuff for me. 
you know, all my financial things that were related to what he would do or could do for me, they just went to his address. Um, and I have a, I have a brother uh, who also uh, really helped me out. I used, you know, he, he was my official address. He's in Florida. Okay. And so things went to him and periodically he would do me the favor of just looking out for certain things. And if something was important, he would help and help me make sure it got taken care of. And other than that, uh, lots of things were just automated. I mean, yeah. I didn't have that many obligations, but the obligations I did have, they just got paid. Right. You know, you, cause you could, they, you even had the, even at the, even when I started back in 2000 and uh, at the end of 2005 and then, a, and then once again in 2006, I got injured when I first got started. So I had a, a little bit of a delay, but, um, you know, you, even then you could set up everything automatically. Mostly anyway. Well, yeah. Gary, I know that, you know, you documented this whole adventure uh, in a book that you've written. And as we round off the episode, I think that we could probably go on for like three more hours on this because this is the stuff I really love is the travel. You know, I'm getting ready to do a huge nine country trip across Europe uh, this summer. And so traveling is one of my favorites. But I really want to get everyone tuning in the opportunity to really read your whole story uh, and, and in its entirety uh what's the best place to, and and first what's your book called and then what's the best place for everyone to find and grab a copy of that uh well thanks for asking and good luck by the way on your journey um uh my book is called the uh, the last places on earth journeys in our disappearing world and uh you can find it it's in the barnes and noble bookstore uh, bookstores, uh, select Barnes and Noble bookstores, um, and you can find it online at Amazon.com and also, of course, at BarnesandNoble.com. And you can say, and you, it comes in hard, uh, hardcover, or actually paperback, so physical copy, or in uh, the Kindle or the Nook versions. Awesome. And then, Gary, what's the best place for people to keep track of you and what you're doing? Is there, you know, a good place online if anyone wants to get in touch or reach out to you? Yes, uh, they can come to my website. It's thelastplacesonearth.com. Perfect. Well, Gary, thanks so much for being here today and sharing your story with us. You know, I know that it was six years of time, so it's a little hard to condense into like a 30-minute episode. But I think that you had a great story there uh, with Papua New Guinea and also, you know, the whole adventure and what you've learned from it, how you've changed from that has been awesome to share with the audience. So thank you again for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Zeph, and it was a lot of fun. Hey, everyone, it's Zeph. Did you like this episode? Be sure to subscribe so that you can tune in next week and tell a friend about the show. If you want access to free training and exclusive interviews on success, happiness, lifestyle design, and adventure, visit me at yearofpurpose.com. Until next time, go out and let life surprise you so that you can live a life rescripted. scripted